0: Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking with John Schroeder, CEO of MapR, about what a data fabric does to create lasting value in a company. This is part of my research into saving the data lake and creating a data supply chain that I've been doing for a while. I've been looking at MapR because they've implemented the concept of a data fabric in their converged data platform. What's interesting to me is how a data fabric moves the idea of a data warehouse and a data lake forward to create a new layer that radiates value in an enterprise. What I wanted to talk to John today about is how the evolution of these ideas has moved forward from a data warehouse through a data lake, now to a data platform, and what's the logic that's driving more and more people to put their data in a data fabric. So how do you see these concepts having evolved from the data warehouse through the data lake into the data platform?
1: Yeah, so there's kind of a huge leap from traditional data warehouse to what we're doing today. And data warehouse provided a tremendous amount of value. Um, it still does in many organizations, but if you look at applying newer technologies like ML, DL, uh, AI, uh, Spark processing, Hadoop processing, you've got, and actually Kafka messaging as well, you've got a much broader set of application Compute engines and APIs to do quite a bit of what a traditional data warehouse could do, but do a a wide variety of things that a data warehouse was never possible, uh, never had the capabilities to make possible, I should say. So, um,
0: and some of the things you just mentioned are operational uh, technologies that were designed to deliver for applications in production, while the data warehouse was almost always an OLAP. Yep. Uh, layer that was really never intended to support production applications.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And um, that's one of the trends that has to be addressed, which is to make these real time analytic applications, right? So uh, a data warehouse traditionally was about building the warehouse and using various OLAP tools to analyze data, come up with some sort of a revelation and saying, okay, let's, let's implement a pricing change, let's say for example. And then we'll come back 30 days later and see how did how did that impact our, our business, right? Did we did we just lose uh, revenue because, or lose margin because we we didn't sell any more and we're selling at a cheaper price, or did we drive more business and higher volume, so it was a good change, right? So it was a fairly slow process compared to if you think about. Um, in our, you know, our customers who would be distributing MAPR onto let's say 10,000 oil rigs, and then in real time doing message streaming back to a centralized uh, environment to do analytics and then dynamically enacting change. Or take a connected car as another example where you've got basically you know, MAPR Edge running in the dashboard of a car, taking uh, a massive amount of data, doing some local processing, but then doing streaming back into a centralized location where they can do more global analytics. That's like a real-time system. Or take a little step further, now you're trying to build a self-driving car, and in real time that car has to have an inference engine that understands a stop sign, the local speed laws, things like that, right? So this has all moved far beyond um, where the traditional data warehouse was as a set of use cases. And, um,
0: and on the way from that data warehouse, there was another intermediate stop that people tried to do many of the things you just mentioned using the idea of a data lake, which was essentially storing data in a huge repository, making it uh, able to store data that wasn't just uh, tabular data but all sorts of different kinds of data and then using a variety of different techniques to process that data to create you know workloads that could could satisfy some of the things you're talking about but still the data lake it changed things in terms of expanding the number of types of data the amount of data that could could be covered but it was essentially closer to a data warehouse yeah. than it is to a data fabric of the sort you're talking about
1: yeah so if you look at there's probably two axes that All this has evolved around over the last, uh, since I started the company a little over nine years ago. So if you look at one, it's the deployment models. So in 2009, 2010, 11, it was about an on-premise data lake. So you're basically gonna build some uh, scale-out system to integrate data from multiple systems and then provide uh, either Hadoop or Spark cell analytics against that. And, you know, primarily the algorithms are around anomaly detection, so finding finding the fraudulent claim or finding some instance of fraud as an example, or it was predictive, trying to say, I'm gonna cluster something, whether it's patients or customers or vehicles, I'm gonna try to cluster ones that are alike, and then based on observing a cluster of, of items, I'm gonna be able to predict behavior. If one of the items in this cluster does something, most likely the other ones are too, right? So those were the kind of the primary algorithms there, as well as building in a lot of SQL processing. So there's a a wealth of SQL engines that run against those data lake technologies, whether it's Spark SQL or Drill or others. Um,
0: And primarily though, it was closer to a data warehouse workload in that it was often batch. You were often looking backward. The people who were using it were analytical workloads. It wasn't necessarily feeding applications.
1: Right, and so then you push it forward into apps like multi-cloud, which is a you know huge requirement today. So you're gonna move either into a public cloud like AWS or Azure. You wanna maintain your independence from them. You may want to also do on-premise processing and how do you distribute that, right? So multi-cloud started moving that data around and, and the requirement on the fabric was to have kind of a portfolio of ways to instantiate data between participants in a multi-cloud environment, then you push that level even further distributed and you're into edge or IoT applications. So now you're in the dashboard of a car or on an oil rig or one of our customers puts MapR into MRI scanners and CT scanners, and we're basically not only looking at the operation of the machine, but also transmitting the scan results so patients get their their diagnosis faster, right? So as you start distributing these apps and building them into real-time operational workloads, it becomes more and more distanced from a traditional data warehouse, which was more look at history, uh, try to draw some conclusion, uh, enact some change, measure, and then go back and see was the change successful or not. This is happening, you can imagine with oil rigs and cars and MRI scanners, this is happening you know, thousands and thousands of times a second, instead of it being more of a iterative data warehouse process.
0: So the evolution, it seems to be, from the data lake to the data fabric is driven by the fact that you are now entering the world of applications, of real-time analytics, and of radical distribution of data all over the globe, not just in terms of distributing across data centers that are globally distributed, but also distributing across all sorts of different computing landscapes, such as the IoT and devices and automobiles. Yep. Now, what's driving though, it seems like the logic of the data fabric is the fact that applications now, if they are going to be able to consume data and then provide you know what they've learned back to the the, the data repository, they can no longer afford to have this massive uh, set of intelligence that will handle all of the different access methods you might need, all of the different integrations you might need, and all of the different ways that that data needs to be synchronized. What you need, what's driving to me the the, uh, implementation of the data fabric is the fact that you need a new layer in the application stack that takes all this responsibility for the things we just mentioned and then allows the applications to be much, much more simple. Now, when you do this, you're now creating a new layer of data that is like what was created in the data warehouse, like what was created in the data lake, but it's a new layer of data that has its own integration, its own logic, that can then be a model of data that serves a variety of purposes. Obviously, sometimes this model has got aspects that are for a specific workload, but often the model will have gen- generic, you know, uh, multi-purpose uh, objects like a cus- customer or a product or things like that. How have you seen application development change based when a when a data fabric is there to allow people to use it?
1: Well, there's kind of a couple aspects of that. One is how the workloads have changed and how quickly that innovates. So. You know, we we're in a traditional data warehouse environment, so people understand SQL processing, and there's uh, still a great value in that, but then we went into Hadoop with MapReduce and Yarn Processing, so you had a new class of applications built uh, on those types of technologies. Then you get more real-time aspects to Spark and a great, great amount of popularity around Spark, and it's probably easier to develop on Spark as well, so it's got a developer benefit. But now, just as quickly, we've moved on to TensorFlow, CAFE, and AI ML technologies. And it's not as if these technologies are good or, it's not like good, better, best, or old, medium, and new. There's different uses for these. If you look at Hadoop and Spark, very good in anomaly detection and clustering. But if you look at AI, a lot of that is automating a process. So if you think about that in a business context, you know, we've delivered quite a few fraud use cases uh, across financial services and healthcare so if you look at healthcare we're looking at claims coming in and very quickly we need to detect the anomaly of this claim doesn't look like a valid claim but then how is that interrogated well that might take a large number of people a few weeks to interrogate to say well is this a really a fraudulent claim or is this a false positive so then you look at applying AI to that process because that process is pretty well known I mean, they look at who the providers are, they look at what the uh, patient's activities are, the types of treatment, the combination of treatments. So they kind of have a cookbook on how to do that. So that's how you could implement that in an AI model and then have that process shortened to be, you'd use, let's say, Hadoop or Spark to identify the anomaly, the fraud, potential fraud, I should say, and then kick in an AI model that in milliseconds could come back and say, we recommend this is fraud or not. You still might have human inter- intervention, then that pushes the button and says, "No, it's fraud, high indicator. Let's decline that." So, all those technologies at the top of the stack are have evolved very quickly and continue to evolve, and they tend to have fairly limited use cases they can address. So, the capabilities of a cafe or a PyTorch will be quite different than the capabilities of TensorFlow. So. So I think we're to continue to see a lot of innovation at that level. So then you say, well, what can a data fabric do for that? Well, if you look at trying to run these types of apps, develop them quickly and then run them in production and not be exposed to data management problems, security problems, distributing the workloads, whether it's IoT or Edge, or we didn't talk about uh, Kubernetes and containerization, but that's having a big impact on this market as well and the ability to distribute apps where the data fabric can help distribute the data with those apps. Um, we take that concern to speed the app development and then smooth that transition into IT.
0: Now, how have you seen this get adopted? Because most of the time when we start talking about a data fabric, we talk about like operational apps where it's, you know, a real-time, and the, the value of the, the data fabric is to provide, like you said, with containers uh, a, a stream capability so that the con- you know, a huge growing mass of containers can write and read you know, in real time from a stream, which is a very friendly way to do things in the container world. But then that data still gets persisted in an organized form later for use. Right. And then, but how does that then, that use case that's primarily driven by you know, operational real time analytics, how does that eventually start becoming something where you're creating an uh something that is like a data landscape that's not necessarily driven by the the operational, you know, uh value of the data fabric but by organizing a a wide landscape of data so that each application is much easier to build
1: yeah and i think that that's That's what a fabric does, which is you'd say, let's say you've got a Kafka streaming application that's doing a lot of real-time processing and can do some streaming analytics as well, but then you're gonna persist that into your data fabric. And you could say, now I wanna apply Spark analytics to that data, and I wanna apply AI or ML to that data. And you've got a consistent data fabric or platform with a consistent set of security rules the alternative to that would be you'd say, well, I've got a Kafka application. I've I've, I've purchased or deployed in a public cloud 500 servers to run my Kafka app. That that part of the app is working fine, but now I want to apply Spark analytics against it. What do I do? I'm not going to move it into another platform, create another set of security roles, and that's that's what creates so much friction between DevOps and line of business and IT is. You know, IT has to guarantee the management and security around that data, but be able to open it up for that sort of agile, you know, development environment, so.
0: What has happened uh, to make the data fabric uh, something that uh, makes applications simpler? Because when I talk to people about the, the data fabric, it's pretty obvious that, you know, a bunch of things that used to be in applications now can be moved into the data fabric. But what's less clear is when you move that data into the data fabric, there's a lot of variations in ways that it's implemented in different data fabrics, uh, in different data fabric products, That re- with respect to how integrated the data is. Sometimes data fabrics are have a really tight multimodal model where anytime you write data in from a stream or from a tabular form or from a file, it all goes into one integrated model that then you can always read from the stream or read from the table. Other uh, data fabrics are looser in their integration so that you can have multiple repositories that may be integrated in uh, a less uh, tight form. What do you see going on in terms of the way data fabrics are used? And you know, how does MapR solve that problem in its converged data fa- platform?
1: I'd say there's a set of functionalities that are required for all applications that are going to process data. Right? You've got a layer around uh, data management. You've got DR, uh, high availability, backup, recovery. Distributing the data across either a a set of computers in a cluster or between multiple clouds or to the edge So there's a a core set of the 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 data management types of capabilities That you have to have in the data fabric and they have to work across um, Different formats that are required for the different application layers. So You know, you might have an application layer that wants to talk to a document database, so you're going to go in a document database format. You might have something that wants to be more uh, simple around parquet files or something like that, or even flat files could be tables, could be streams. So you want that unified data fabric to be able to handle the management, the HA, the DR, the backup recovery, the distribution, um, and then a unified security model at that data layer because what you don't want to be exposed to is you say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define security rules into an application layer, write data into a data fabric, and then if I come in through a different application layer, it's going to be unsecure. Right, so you want that built in at the data fabric
0: layer. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it makes, it's up to the application developer how much integration they have. If you want to create a data fabric that has an API that goes from a stream to a table you know, to, to a file-based access and you want to integrate all of those inside your data fabric for the purposes of one workload, you can do that. But if it turns out that you want a looser integration where you have the stream separate from the tabular information separate from the file and, and communication of between those layers as needed for the applications, you can do it that way. You, you don't enforce like a strict multimodal data model on the data
1: fabric? No, you don't want to make that a mandatory part of a fabric, right? Because what you really want is to make it very easy for these apps to be built. So you'd want any DevOps team out there in the world to download any copy of Kafka, build a Kafka application, and then you want that to seamlessly move on to your data fabric, right? You don't want to say, oh, now you've developed that app. Now that IT is going to have to put this in production and guarantee service levels. It's gonna take six months to re-architect the data model, come up with some sort of a, um, a barrier to be able to run that in a production environment. So the, the design center for us is anything that's developed in any of these common standard application layers, whether it's Hadoop or Spark or TensorFlow, CAFE, Kafka, any of those things, they should migrate seamlessly into our data fabric and inherit the underlying benefits of the fabric. So now you've got, point-in-time recovery, you've got HA, you've got DR with failover and failback, you've got a unified security layer, so you're not going to be exposed to security risk. And it benefits the overall business, because line of business wants to move fast, DevOps has been a, a great innovation in the industry to get the, the requirements to the line of business done much, much quicker and more accurately. And the gap there was then how do you make that jump into an IT environment where they have to provide service levels? Well, if you can give IT the assurance that they've got a fabric that's gonna preclude data loss, data integrity, security breaches, and you don't require an application change, you've got the best of both worlds, right? You're given the line of business and DevOps the agility, they can ride the wave of all the best new technologies that are emerging at the top of the stack, and you can take the, the risk out of it for IT and the company as a whole.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier AI workloads and how they work with the data fabric, but that's actually kind of a complicated uh, a construct when you start thinking about the details. The, what you mentioned earlier was the idea of the CAFE, TensorFlow, you know, PyTorch workloads using the data fabric in the training and model building phase. Right. But the data fabric is also going to be used in the model scoring phase, where the actual AI is gonna be running not on top of the data fabric, but inside of the data fabric right. to allow you to use and score you know, based on the model and also do retraining at whatever intervals you decide next. So have you found that uh, this structure that allows the data fabric to be used both for training and then also for, be used later for operational has speeded the development of some of these AI and ML apps?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was at, uh, Invada had their AI conference a couple months ago, and I was fortunate they invited me to uh, a meeting with about 70 of their customers. It was a a full-day meeting. And they did a raise of hands at the beginning. They said, okay, what's your biggest barrier to getting to AI? And they said, number one is data integration, number two is data cleansing, right? So if you really look at the flow with the data fabric, you're doing that integration into your data fabric, right? So you can pull data sources from almost any platform out there, um, whether it's distributed at the edge, multi-cloud, mainframe, what have you, right? So you can you've got a broad set of dialects you can talk to the ex- the existing IT infrastructure to be able to integrate that data. You look at gl- data cleansing; quite a bit of that is anomaly detection. So it's a great application for things like Hadoop and Spark, and that where you'd say, you know, what's wrong with this data? How do we cleanse this data and create a a training data set that's properly labeled to do model training? So then, within that same data fabric, can you run those model, the training models, directly on the fabric? And with MapR, you can. So you don't have to move that data to another platform to do that. So, like in the case of NVIDIA, their DGX servers. Uh, can run MapR as a native software, make their DGX servers part of our data fabric or as a a hardware platform as part of our fabric. They can run those training models and then do all the variations you're talking about. You've got various versions of models, various various versions of training data sets, and you get your validation data sets for doing scoring. And then you're gonna create inference engines and then you're gonna need to come back and look at that historically in the future. So you're gonna say, Uh, my self-driving car. Why did it get confused by a house for sale sign that's a hexagon and it thought it was a stop sign? Well, you're gonna have to take that error and bring it back and say, was it the training data set or the model? What do we have to change here, right? So it didn't find the right target article. So that's part of, uh, that's one way you could look at the life cycle of data integration, data cleansing, model training, validation training, storing the versions of the models and the training data sets and the validation data sets and then even debugging problems with the resulting inference engine even, you know, years in the future.
0: So MapR has always been ruthless about fixing whatever is needed to fix to support the workloads. When you started, you know, your Hadoop distribution you rewrote HDFS because you felt that it didn't meet enterprise standards and didn't have a variety of properties uh, such as you know the ability to read-write small files, security, a lot of other things that were going to be needed in the enterprise. In the data fabric, you've made a bunch of decisions that are the same in that they implement difficult to implement um, capabilities uh, that you feel are really important for this new generation of applications. I'd like you to talk about two of those decisions. First of all, the uh, decision to make strong consistency across a globally distributed data fabric. That's not an easy thing to do at scale or with high performance. Why did you think that was so important?
1: Well, I know when I was starting the company, I looked really heavily at Cassandra and Hadoop as the first areas that I thought would be interesting to try to apply to uh, innovation. And when I looked at the eventual consistency model, I felt like it had some very valid use cases for like cross data center commit for lightweight transactions like filling a shopping cart, right? If you look at um, Dynamo, DB at Amazon, which was kind of the precursor to Cassandra, you're saying, "Hey, I'm gonna. I, I need to toss these items in a shopping cart, but my shopping cart abandonment rate's more than 80 percent. And if I ever lost an item in a shopping cart, well, somebody just go add it again, right?" And so, so that that was a, a great way to address that sort of a use case. But I thought, could you extrapolate that on the broader set to use cases? And I thought, not really. As soon as you get into more um, more critical applications, like actually, actually closing the transaction when someone's buying the shopping cart, that's going to move into a strong consistency model, right? Or if you look at fraud detection or any of the other top use cases that we address, they're not going to be um, uh, accepting that type of a data risk, right? So that's why it felt like strong consistency. And then it gets down to how you architect the product and we did it as a kind of a lockless, I guess you'd call it a state driven, lockless architecture. So, instead of architecting it like a traditional database or a traditional storage device where you've got a lock, a lot of locking and mutexes and things like that called bottlenecks, we developed it to be distributed across thousands and thousands of computers. So, it was really the design center that allowed us to build in both the strong consistency model with the scale-out and distributed processing that we can support.
0: So, many of the hard problems that you then solved in the data fabric with the cross data center strong consistency we're actually started yeah. in the Hadoop file system when you rewrote that
1: yeah there's actually a layer below that that is very esoteric to get into but it's really one of the, the patented inventions we have which is how we how we create the objects of data that we distribute and replicate and things like that and that underpinning um made it very easy to say okay put a HDFS scan on that put a H base scan on it put NFS scan on it put a Kafka scan put a JSON scan put a SQL scan and that underlying invention is really what allowed us to distribute uh, that way
0: So it's sort of like the internet is really implemented most of the time in MPLS network with an with an with a TCP IP overlay and uh, you know, you, your your data layer was like the MPLS.
1: Yeah, it is kind of like a stack too. Once yeah. you've got that underpin underpinning, well, then you can expose it as these well known APIs, and they inherit the benefits of all that, and, and then uh, and then the unified security at that layer as well. So. Um,
0: well, yeah, that's the second thing I wanted to talk about. Is one of the things that you get with your approach to security uh, and control over access is. Essentially, a data governance framework that you can apply all the way out to application and analytics workloads. How has that changed what people are doing with the data fabric? Do they find that they now are using uh, the data fabric for you know data governance tasks that they uh, that they you know hadn't previously considered?
1: Like, like, give me an example of what governance um, is a broad topic. So. Um,
0: the idea of being able to control uh, and mask data. Uh, uh, when certain people are accessing it, the uh, idea of being able to have highly granular security controls over access to data, uh, to be able to assert a policy that's relatively complicated yeah. and then have that policy implemented in an operational setting. not Like, the, like you said earlier, you don't want to have one access method uh, come in and break all of the security. Exactly. You, know, you want to be able to have that security...
1: Yeah, so that has been a very big investment for us, policy-based, cell level, masking, uh, in, but it goes beyond that. It's encryption on the wire, it's signing between endpoints, it's encryption at disk. I mean, it's a, security is a very, very large um, investment that you have to make at that data layer. And then if it's done properly at the data fabric layer, then you don't have to implement that at app layers, which is actually pretty easy to hack anyway. You know, if if you're saying I've got a security layer that works only with Hadoop and I'm gonna implement my access control rules there, well, if the data's still on disk and and another access layer can get to that data on disk, it's gonna be unsecured. So you have to build that wealth of technology out from signing between endpoints, encryption on disk, encryption on the wire to policy-based cell level masking and that's, that's 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 core to having a proper data fabric and not having to push that up into the application layers.
0: Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the global namespace. Now, when we talk about things from a programmer point of view and people talk about a global namespace, they sort of understand it pretty quickly that you can declare a variable or a file or a name of some sort in one data center, and then it will Show up and be the same thing in other data centers. How do you describe the value of that to people who aren't programmers?
1: Let's see. It's. Uh, I mean, what was better that you had a phone book for every town you went into, or that now you can go to LinkedIn or Facebook or something and find you know a bigger population? So. Instead of uh, doing this at small scale, we say you have a global namespace not only for files, but you've got it for JSON documents, key-value pair database, persisted Kafka streams, S3 objects. You've got a you've got a namespace to even track an S3 object that you've um, you've uh, migrated into public cloud, and you want to recall later, right? So it's just. It's kind of what you would have found in a, a global, you know, global namespace for a file system, except it's it's just way beyond that in scope, with every different type of data type out there and distributed across multi-cloud as well. And it's it's key. Otherwise, you've got to track all that yourself. Otherwise, each application would have to have its own version of the phone book. You know, the version for Palo Alto, and then it'd have to, you'd have, to have a version of the phone book for Oakland and. Instead, you say, "No, I know where everything is, despite where it's distributed, what cloud it's in, or on the edge, and I can do that across you know all the important data types."
0: What are the urgent use cases that are driving adoption of the data fabric initially? When a company decides to use one,
1: uh, it depends on point in time. I think it, you know early on, it was providing a better enterprise grade implementation of things like Hadoop and Spark. Now I think the vision of the customers is much broader. And uh, you know they are thinking about these more complex work streams that say, well, I need to ingest, I need to do some MDM, then I want to do some cleansing, I want to do some integration, then I want to apply a different technology like uh, to this like AI. Or it could be it's Kafka Streams coming into persistence and that's running a certain part of their use case and application, but that's gonna be used then as part of a a repository for doing analytics. And so I think early on it was all more about, hey, we've got a more enterprise grade platform that you can trust. I think today it's more about these complex workloads where they're understanding they're gonna apply multiple technologies and they wanna have that, that strong fabric as the foundation for that to make it easier to deploy meet service levels, make it secure, and uh, and be able to expand from there. They know better today that whatever technology they're using, there's gonna be something else they're gonna to wanna to try six months from now. So there's also a fair amount of future proofing they're doing there saying, hey, you know, when I started with Hadoop, I thought that's the only thing I was going to use forever because I used a, a data warehouse for thirty years prior to that. So I thought my my technology cycle was going to be like three decades. Well now the the technology cycle, you have some new innovation in the market every year. And so they want to be able to ride that wave and not have to redo an underlying data fabric every time there's a new technology in the market.
0: What drives expansion after the f- initial use cases?
1: Expansion's wonderful. and It's really down to um, they gain value out of these use cases. I mean, these are, it was kind of interesting going into this business and you're talking about a new platform People are used to a new platform being something else to run ERPs on. So you went from you know, mainframe to client server, now you're going to put SaaS. And you say, well I needed an HR application on a mainframe and then I did one on a, in a client server environment and now I'm doing one in the public cloud. And uh, these are different, these are front office apps. So these are either generating revenue or doing massive cost savings and the numbers are huge. So once you get a customer going on their first or second use case, you'll be back there a year later. They'll have, you know, 25, 30 use cases. The use cases expand from there. And then the, you know, data growth, we've been looking at data growth diagrams for, you know, probably 30 years. But it continues to mushroom, and it's the new currency. I mean, it's the most valuable asset most companies have and uh, they want to take, make use of that, and they need it to diver- drive competitive advantage. So we end up being in really front office applications, and the, and the returns are, are pretty dramatic, so they expand.
0: Now, how do you handle, after that expansion takes place, the fact that you have that, some of the same problems that cause the data lake to slow down? And what I'm talking about are the ability to understand what's in the data fabric, the cataloging problem, the ability to uh, have that data then have proper maintenance and stewardship. You know, after you get it working, it's a different sort of person that takes care and maintains the quality of data over time. You know, the the, the once you create a reusable data asset, it requires care and feeding. Mm-hmm. And so how has and, and some of this you know, slowed down and stopped you know, data lake implementations from being successful. What has the approach been at the, for the data fabric to, to solve some of these issues so you don't get a data fabric swamp? I, I actually word.
1: think most of the data, data lake swamp problems weren't as much caused by master data management as they were by uh, it being a, you know, if we build it, they'll come sort of a strategy. So when we go into customers and probably less so today, but more so back in 2011, 12, 13, some of their strategy was, Hey, we're going to get all the data into some central cluster, and then we're going to get learnings out of that. And that's going to drive our business. And, you know, at times it would work, but frequently it would fail because it wasn't very bounded and it didn't have a very good definition as opposed to you go to a healthcare company and they say, we want to reduce payment on fraudulent claims by 80%. And that's going to be worth between, you know, two and $10 million a month to us. And then you apply to that use case, and within three to five months, you're achieving that goal for them. And then they look and they say, well, what's the next thing I need to do? And maybe it's a use case like provider accuracy. Hey, we have new government regulation, we have to guarantee the information that we publish on our website about our providers. Providers don't update us. How are we gonna avoid being out of compliance? And then you move on to that use case. So um, I was always much more excited about talking to the line of business about what their use case was and then implementing that and then seeing how they can expand in that that data lake as opposed to the, we're gonna, I mean, I can think about questions I got on panels like seven years ago to be, well, once you build your lake, how do you organize your data scientists? And it was like, well, we have a room full of them and we feed them pizzas and you know, we get learnings. I mean, it, it really wasn't... Those weren't the, the successful projects. The successful projects were you got a DevOps team with some data science uh, uh, expertise in that DevOps team working on a business use case and those tend to multiply very, very quickly. So I, I think that was more about it. Now, as far as cleaning up the data warehouse. There are a wealth of MDM, MDM tools out there, and we, we implement those with our customers. Um, we do have various ways to archive data and clean things up for efficiency standpoint. Um, but you know, there isn't as big of a driver on that as when storage in the warehouse was so uh, precious and didn't scale as well. So you're so, saying
0: it's primarily use case based Within the context of use case, you can keep track of the data. Uh, It's not, you've not seen a lot of people trying to build like a massive one repository to rule them all sort of fabric. And so this sort of data swamp thing doesn't happen because you have targeted next, you know, nests of data that's used for specific use cases.
1: And a lot of it is that, you know, if you look at what are some of the top technologies for doing that sort of lineage and governance and then, you know, like companies like Informatica and Waterline and things like that. And they have, you know, they have great technologies. I'm sure they have more on their roadmaps to deliver, but it's just a very hard, it's very hard to be agile, handle a massive amount of diverse data, get the value out of that and try to cleanse it like a traditional data warehouse. Because it's, you know, all the MDM has always been, you know, a little bit like if I went out in my backyard and I tried to build an Excel spreadsheet of every insect in the backyard. I mean, they're coming in, they're coming out. They're, the, the volume and velocity is so big that you have to apply it selectively to where you have to. You know, where do you have to identify PIA? Where do you have to identify HIPAA data? Where do you have to comply with GDPR? And you have to have really strong controls on that. And, uh, but it's a, um, it, it's a trade-off versus the agility you can have with the underlying data.
0: So. It seems to me that you know it's pretty clear that the data fabric is going to be you know part of a, a the the application stack going forward, mm-hmm. and that we're not going to think of rep- the persistence of data anymore so tightly coupled with one repository. Right. We're going to be thinking about it in terms of multiple repositories that may be integrated and have a lot of services associated with them. Yep. But this is again a programmer sort of software architect point of view. How would you describe the value of this data fabric if you were talking to a, another CEO who has heard about this concept and is trying to understand why it should happen? What would you say the, the, the point of a data fabric is from a business value perspective?
1: Well, I think, it, I, I think they, they'd have to understand that they're either going to implement it or they're going to be left behind. Right? If you think about, I mean, we just have too many obvious examples in front of us. I mean, why is Jeff Bezos one of the, the richest men in the world, right? It's, uh, you know, he wasn't selling books, he was, it was all about the data about his customers, and I think that that's moved across industry. And so I would think it's on most of their um, top priority lists as far as how do, we, how do we use data as a currency to build our business and build new top line revenue and perhaps eliminate un- unnecessary expenses like uh, that introduce risk and fraud. So uh, then how does a data fabric enter into that? Well, how do you do that with the maximum velocity to be able to use today's most modern technologies in conjunction with uh, future technologies that are evolving at a very, very fast clip? How do you do that without exposing yourself to regulatory security or data loss risk you need a data fabric to be able to have that agility and still be able to uh, comply with regulations uh, and not be exposed to any sort of, you know, data loss outages or security breaches. Um, And then I think what we've done with the data fabric is also swing back and forth on the pendulum. So the data lake was a consolidation play. And now, so we move forward with multi-cloud, Edge IoT and Kubernetes, we're distributing this. And so, this is a way for them to distribute their processing um, with fairly little work. So, if they say, hey, we're moving to public cloud and we want to run on Azure, they can do that with a, a good data fabric. If they say, you know what, we want to move half that workload into Amazon with a proper data fabric, they're going to be able to do that with uh, um, less cost than if they didn't have a a data fabric. If they say, I want to move some of this back on-prem, they can do that. If they want to distribute this out to the edge, they can do that. So these are all uh, ways that the data fabric can give them the the processing power to be able to address both the growing number of application technologies and the innovation there, plus the the distributed processing with the the new way the the, uh, use cases are being deployed.
0: The last thing I want you to comment on is sort of like the inverse of that question. And I'm going to answer my own question first. Okay. And that is, if I look at the growing, you know, importance of AI in a lot of different ways, you know, different industries, it makes me think, what would I do if I were just your average bear and I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss the AI train? And The answer that I can't escape is that I would focus on creating a really good data infrastructure, what I call a data supply chain, and I would get really good at creating proof of concepts uh, implementations of AI technology. Mm -hmm. And then whenever a new AI technology seemed promising, I would become very good at bringing all the data I had to bear Mm -hmm. on that technology and then seeing if it worked and essentially what i would be worried about is i want, would want to be the best person at managing my data and then applying it through ai products and right now i see a lot of people either doing experiments with raw materials of ai or not spending enough time on organizing their data and creating a data supply chain so that they won't be the ones who are able to implement Twenty different AI products. If that, de- if that's determined, that's what will help their business. What would you say, in, from your perspective, is the biggest misallocation of funds related, you know, to this space of, you know, making the most of your data, making a better application infrastructure, making preparing for the world of AI and machine learning?
1: Uh, I think it's. If you take an approach that is more tactical and not strategic, I think you end up quickly building up a huge amount of expense. So, if let's say you started out with a Hadoop journey and you said, I'm going to implement an on premise 100 server implementation of Hadoop, and then you didn't look down the road and say, Well, you know what? Then I want to do some Kafka streaming. So now, I've got another 150 servers running Kafka, and the two systems are very poorly integrated. You can basically kind of copy some data between the two systems, but it's not unified. It doesn't have unified security. It has to be managed differently. If you look at your MDM, the MDM has to do on two separate things. And then you say, well, now I want to start experimenting with uh, CAFE. And then you say, well, now I'm going to buy another set of servers to run those technologies, be able to do run the training models and the validation and things like that. And now you say, now I've got another one. So those are the ones that are gonna fall behind, right? If they don't think through a data fabric that says, what's gonna be my evolution of what I wanna do as a use case, and what's gonna be the evolution of the types of technologies I wanna apply, it's quickly gonna cost them um, both agility in the marketplace and a lot of uh, overhead money as well and expense and latency between those systems. And I think that, so those are about workloads. I think also deployment models as they say, well, I'm I'm gonna start in the public cloud because I've got a public cloud first mandate. So I'm gonna start there. Well, what if in the future they decide, you know what? I don't wanna be so dependent on a single cloud vendor, so I wanna split it across two or three cloud vendors. Or what if they say, I wanna bring some of this back on-prem well, if they've got a proper data fabric in place, it's gonna ease the way of doing that much more than if they just use, let's say, Amazon or Azure, all their native tools, and get you know, severely locked into those environments. And yeah, there's some good, pretty good surveys out. I think there's a survey within the last month or so that said 81% of enterprises already were mandating a multi-cloud strategy. So they're, they're figuring it out pretty quick.
0: Well, thanks, this was fun.
1: Thank you.